Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. For a Connecticut family of four, the United Way of Connecticut found that it costs $126,000 just to meet their basic needs. That's more than four times the federal poverty level. Food insecurity is a big part of this affordability crisis, with one in 10 Connecticut residents struggling. That's a statistic from Connecticut Food Share. And just a quick note for our listeners that Connecticut Public recently partnered with the organization during its fall pledge drive. And coming up, we'll hear more about Food Share's efforts to address food insecurity where we live. And we'll also talk about an income-based grocery store coming soon to Hartford, which has the highest rates of food insecurity in the state. Plus, Hartford High School just launched the Grub Pub, an in-school pantry, and Principal Flora Padro joins us later in the hour. But first, here to help us dig into this very complex issue of food insecurity is Dr. Caitlin Caspi. She's an associate professor in the Department of Allied Health Sciences at the University of Connecticut. She's also serving as the director of food security initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Caspi. Happy to be here. And for our listeners, if you are struggling with your food budget or if you have questions about this issue, please give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Dr. Caspi, fresh off the presses, the USDA just released new new numbers on food insecurity. Can you tell us what you can um, what you got from that? Sure. It's a really timely day for us to be talking about this because the newest numbers just came out yesterday. They reflect um, food insecurity prevalence in December of 2022. So um, again, these are the most current numbers we have. And they showed that overall, 12.8% of U.S. households were food insecure in 2022. And uh, it's notable that this is a meaningful increase from the 2021 numbers that we had when it was 10.2%. So you had mentioned the one in 10 statistic, and that's the numbers we've been going off of. Um, that has That number was steady throughout most of the pandemic, but we are seeing a rise in those numbers. And so you mentioned the pandemic, and we know that COVID-19 has been a major stressor for a lot of issues, and especially for food insecurity, and it brought a lot of people to food pantries that had never been before. And so having just talked about the new USDA numbers and with this kind of sort of delayed uh, spike, does that surprise you at all? Well, uh, to some extent, yes, but in other ways, it makes a lot of sense. And I think these numbers can be explained So um, first of all, we all know there was a lot going on during those pandemic years, and there were some really unusual patterns that emerged. 
things were really changing rapidly. So, um, you know, we can all remember at the start of the pandemic, uh, the really large increase in food needs for a lot of households due to a variety of issues including things like the school closures uh, in March of 2020, supply chain issues we might remember from 2020. Um, and then, you know, the disruptions have changed over time, but there have continued to be disruptions that have affected how people are getting their food. So most recently in 2022, I think one of the the, the clear um, sort of changes was the high inflation and rise in food prices that we saw that peaked in 2022. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to some extent, we would have expected a, a large increase during the pandemic. But what happened was that at the same time as we had changing food needs, we also had a very large federal policy response. And what it did was provide support people during a time of uh, kind of unprecedented need. And it helped ensure that food insecurity rates didn't increase dramatically or that we couldn't really see that dramatic increase because of the supports uh, were to some extent curbing um, a dramatic rise during the pandemic. And you just mentioned policy response from, from the federal level, and I wanna get into that in a second, but I also wanna ask you, you know, how else has food in, uh, has food security changed since the pan pandemic began? You know, you mentioned there's so many disruptions like the school closures and and the supply chain issues and just so many different kinds of disruptions that happened over the last couple of years. But with those disruptions, you know, what sorts of solutions have been eliminated from that, you think? Illuminated, I mean. Sure. So. Uh, one thing that's pretty clear was that early on in the pandemic, households with children were at uh, very high risk. Again, you had children who were typically fed uh, at school. Uh, and when those school closures happened, um, they were not able to get food through their usual channels, um, including the National School Lunch Program. Um, and so very quickly, uh, there was an expansion, new programming um, in order to support households with children. So we did see um, some signals very early on in the pandemic of um, households with children um, facing uh, uh, higher food insecurity on some measures. Um, and, and very uh, quickly, I think the um, policy response demonstrated that um, that it was effective and food insecurity rates for households with children did not rise um, according to say the 2021 numbers. Um, and so I think I think we can really see uh, in these numbers that that swift and sort of far-reaching policy response was uh, really beneficial and, and averted what could have been a much larger disaster. And you mentioned children just now, too, and I think the Connecticut nonprofit Data Haven found that food insecurity nearly doubled between 2021 and 2022 for Connecticut parents. And they attributed the jump um, in part to the end of the child tax credit. So so with that in mind, are there other policies or programs needed um, as we sort of continue this conversation? Yeah, well, you mentioned the child tax credit, and I think that that's a really large part of what we are seeing about the change between 2021 and 2022. So in 2021, um, households with children, most of them were getting um, a, 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 a monthly um, a benefit 
for the second half of 2021. And we know that that child tax credit money was used um, to really curb food insecurity and bring children out of poverty. We know that it was effective in doing that. And um, when that was taken away, um, you, you know, you can see the impact pretty clearly. Now, the other thing that was happening at the same time was that um, there's a program called SNAP or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And those benefits were increased quite substantially during the pandemic so that all households, for the most part, including households in Connecticut, were getting the maximum um, amount allowed for a family of their household size. But those benefits ended um, in earlier in 2023 when the public health emergency expired. So SNAP, uh, you know, we talked about child tax credit. SNAP was, and those expansions were uh, a really key part of the response. Um, but what I think, uh, what I think we can gather is that because we saw benefits actually uh, reduce in 2023, that it could be that we haven't even seen the peak of food insecurity rises yet. And we might see another increase next year because of the, you know, kind of additional waning of these supports beyond the child tax credit. And so while this is on our radar, I kind of want to zoom out a little bit here. Um, in 2021, you wrote a piece addressing some misconceptions around food insecurity, you know, for example, how it fits with other food access concepts like hunger and food sovereignty. I want to talk about, you know, has public awareness around those misconceptions improved or worsened or what does that look like? Yeah, I think that the pandemic really forced us to pay attention in a way that we weren't before. And look, I think we weren't paying attention potentially because as a very wealthy nation, why would or why should food insecurity be a problem? We have enough food produced in this country. There is um, a perceived uh, sort of, there's a real focus on the obesity epidemic and uh, rising rates of obesity. And so, um, you know, through that lens it, it, and the, the sort of lens of the wealth of our nation, it, it seems kind of inconceivable that one in 10 families could be facing food insecurity. But the, the last few years, of course, has sort of shaken up people's experiences quite a bit. Um, we had, we many of us had to make adaptations to our food habits at the start of the pandemic. Um, many of us have gone to the grocery store and been really shocked by the rise in prices. Um, many people saw in the news in the early stages of the pandemic lines forming outside of food banks. And so I think people had a growing consciousness of how little it takes um, to not know if you're going to be able to afford groceries. Right. And I myself have been a part of um, a lot of reporting, seeing those lines increase um, in ways that I did not expect as a reporter. And and you mentioned, you know, this has changed over the last couple of years. And it's difficult to have this conversation without mentioning that we we've gone through a pandemic and in a lot of ways it's still ongoing. So how have your feelings about this issue and your role as an advocate evolved over time? You know, are you seeing there's more need for advocacy? There's more need for for awareness spreading? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the awareness um, has grown and is it we're there. We're having the conversation like we are today. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, another way, though, that I think that the conversation has evolved is that previously there was uh, a lot of the conversation really focused on 
geography and um and and where people live specifically um whether or not they lived in a so-called food desert or a, what what we call food desert which is a low income area without access to healthy and affordable food um and i want to be really clear that it is a real problem if you can't access healthy and affordable food in your neighborhood because there's no store or you can't access it because of transportation barriers um and that is a a real problem for residents of connecticut and it's a problem across the country so so a healthy food environment is really essential for health and for for eating well and maintaining food security but at the same time um i would say that it's not what we might call a fundamental cause of food insecurity and so when we're thinking um about the solutions to food insecurity it's it's helpful to think just a little bit more about the um the more fundamental causes um food insecurity isn't happening in a vacuum it's really intersecting with a lot of other challenges that people face um it intersects with a lack of stable housing uh lack of health insurance and or job security um it happens because of disability um and because of all of these things uh i would say that food insecurity isn't primarily a story about food so much as it's one about um sort of many facets of economic instability and um <clears throat> i love that you mentioned that just because like we've been talking about food insecurity but word words matter and so you mentioned that the USDA retired the term food desert um in favor of low income or low access areas so glad to sort of dispel the misconceptions there and at the top of the hour we also mentioned too that the federal poverty level which is largely based on the cost of uh, a minimum food diet what are some of the other metrics that you lean on to really determine food insecurity and how much has changed since we started to sort of measure that poverty level well um so the the level of uh, the way we measure food insecurity has stayed the same for several decades in the United States um so we do have this sort of consistent measure um that's really helpful um uh in order to be able to measure change over time um one one i would say change that's happened is that we uh, we use the term food insecurity to talk about a household level um economic and social condition uh, where people have limited or uncertain access to adequate food and that's quite different than talking about hunger um or using the term hunger which um which USDA used to use to think about sort of the individual but now now that term is really used to talk about individual level physiological condition um of of being hungry um and so when we're talking about um food insecurity we're really talking about that that social and economic uh, condition i would say that in um in the last year or two there has been an increased focus on um the terminology nutrition security and the concept of of providing um food not just um in adequate quantities but also in um uh, you know in adequate quality so that it promotes health and well-being um and so you're seeing an increase in kind of a, a call to measure not just how much food people are getting but the quality of the food that people are getting 
Well, Ian, you just touched on the quality of food, and you've also done a lot of research on how food pantries are utilized and how healthy foods are really important. And so can you touch on that research, um, and what does that look like? Absolutely. So um, there's a lot of supports that people could get um, in order to uh, to address food insecurity, federal nutrition assistance programs, but half of people facing food insecurity are not uh, using programs like SNAP for a variety of reasons. It could be due to eligibility um, or a, a sort of stigma associated with those programs. And um, for people who can't access or are not accessing programs like SNAP, food pantries and the charitable food system have become um, a really integral part of the way that they're making their, they're meeting their own food needs. Um, And so I've done quite a bit of work in um, trying to change those spaces um, so that they are both um, more welcoming, um, uh, less uh, stigmatizing places to visit um, places where you can access healthy and appealing food um, without um, with with dignity, and also places where um, that promote health. So where clients have a choice, um, they have um, in what they take. The they might be set up much more like a grocery store than like a place where you can get a handout. And um, people can sort of meet their meet the needs of their own families. Well, I feel like you can read my mind because I wanted to ask you more about how stigma factors into a lot of the data that we're discussing. Can you touch more on that? Sure. So um, I guess we're we're going to go back to those initial numbers that I discussed at the very beginning. Um, and I think it's important to note that those numbers might really be re- underreporting. Sure. Food insecurity, uh, it's 12.8%, um, and that's, uh, you know, from a nationally representative sample. But, you know, s- food insecurity is likely to be underreported the same way, um, you know, any sort of stigmatized condition is going to be underreported. Um, and uh, so that's that's kind of critical because, you um, the problem with stigma is you have a lot of people who need resources and might be eligible for resources, but aren't getting them. Right. And we'll be digging more into that in our next segment. You've been listening to a Dr. Caitlin Caspi, who's an associate professor in the Department of Allied Health Sciences at UConn. And she'll stay with us as we continue this conversation with Connecticut Food Share. And for our listeners, if you're affected by food insecurity, you can give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing food insecurity in Connecticut and some of the efforts to address it. In Hartford's Frog Hollow, a new grocery store offering income-based prices is set to open in January. The Hartford Current reported that the store comes after decades of debate over how to expand shopping options in Hartford. And joining us now to discuss is Jason Jakubowski, president and CEO of Connecticut Foodshare. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining us this morning. Very happy to be here today. And we also have with us is Ben Dubow, who is the executive director at Forge City Works, which is a Hartford-based nonprofit that will operate the grocery on Broad. Thanks, Ben, for joining us today. Ben, are you there? Yep. Oh, Ben is there. Yep. Good morning. Good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you, too. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Jason, I want to start with you. Uh, You've been listening to our conversation with UConn's uh, Dr. Caitlin Caspi. What would you add to some of the misconceptions around uh, food security, which is what we were just talking about earlier? Well, first of all, I I agree with everything that Dr. Cassidy said. I mean, especially in light of the USDA report that uh, that was issued yesterday, um, I think the the biggest misconception that there is right out there is is that things are significantly better than they were um, during the pandemic. Things are different than they were during the pandemic, for sure, no question about that. But I, you know, I've, I've been at this for many years now, and 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 I don't know if I would say that things are better than they were at the peak of the pandemic. Yes, we do not have twenty five hundred cars a day at Rentschler Field um, lining up. We don't have that visual. But what we hear from our 600 pantries across the the state, and we see it ourselves at our own mobile sites, um, people are hurting right now. There's a lot of people who are dealing with food insecurity because, um, uh, as she said, a lot of the federal stopgap measures that were put in during COVID to attempt to uh, divert catastrophe were effective. Uh, Many of them, if not all of them, have gone by the, the wayside now. They've expired. And now you've got the, a situation where, yeah, we're not in a pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, but we are in a situation in which um, individual families are struggling because they don't have the child tax credit, they don't have the the uh, the the, um, the moratorium on student loan payments, on, on rent, uh, etc. So um, it, it's it's about as bad as as we've seen it in a while. And Ben, you know, following what Jason just said, you know, especially with a lot of the relief programs have ended or are ending, and we have talked about a lot of issues that were exacerbated uh, by what's been going on the last couple of years. You know, what have you seen? You know, what would you add to what Jason just Jason just mentioned? Yeah, you know, I would totally agree, uh, and the statistics I think bear that out. I will say, you know, from our location right in Frog Hollow, a neighborhood in Hartford. We see uh, food insecurity and certainly lack of food access. It's a persistent and ongoing issue that has been present for as long as you know I can speak to, and longer than that, and continues to be. So, you know, there are, there are definitely areas 
I think of the state and of the populace that are experiencing food insecurity in ways they haven't before or, you know, and, and I agree with what Jason is saying, but I'll tell you in our neighborhood in Frog Hollow, it has been a persistent and consistent problem for decades. Right. And I think a lot of these issues are pre-pandemic, right? Just exacerbated um, with what's been going on. And we've been talking about solutions as well and also mentioning that you're helping launch the Grocery on Broad in Frog Hollow here in Hartford. Can you tell us about this project? You know, what has that been like? So, yeah, so it's a really exciting product, project we're working on. It'll be a small neighborhood grocery store. Uh, it'll be means tested, which is, means there'll be a sliding scale uh, pricing model. So depending on where you are in terms of your finances, there'll be a self-certification system. There'll be uh, discounts available on the listed price up to 50% or 25% or for everyone who uses the store, at least a baseline of 3%. And the idea is we want people to sign up to get those discounts. And when they check out, they'll simply swipe a card when they check out with the cashier and the discount will be automatically applied, right? So no one has to know who's on the discount. No one has to know who's getting supplemental stuff and it really destigmatizes the whole process of fighting food insecurity and providing food access. And so you know this is a, this is a process that's been that's been going on for a while and it's also a, cr- a very creative solution to at least a couple of problems. You told the Hartford Current that it's a dignified way for people to get food and also helps address this neighborhood's very long-standing grocery program as you have just mentioned. You know, can you first talk about this issue of stigma and how how you see and address that? Obviously this grocery store will play a big bro- role in that. Yeah, you know, we know both from data, but also from uh, listening to people's stories and, you know, connecting with people on the ground that there is a, a persistent stigma around right getting a food assistance or any services. And that that in and of itself often is a barrier to people getting the resources and, and the services they need. And so I first encountered that when uh, I was helping run the soup kitchen and the food pantry in Manchester, Connecticut. And we would look at those issues and try to figure out ways uh, to destigmatize and, and really make it a more dignified process. Uh, um, and so for us, this idea of a grocery, again, it doesn't replace pantries. It doesn't solve the, the big grocery problem in Hartford, right. but it provides in one neighborhood, in a small setting, an opportunity to provide um, healthy, wholesome, real foods uh, at a prices that make sense for people and they can afford in a way that um, preserves and celebrates dignity by coming together with a diversity um, of customers so that we're all shopping next to each other, um, kind of fic- picture kind of a, a co-op kind of model. And um, we're all in it together as our neighbors and no one has to know again who's getting the help. So we think that that's going to be uh, really helpful in terms of eliminating the stigma and really emphasizing kind of a sense of belonging and inclusion uh, and all those things that are really important. And as this is launching too, you know, are you hoping that this will become a model for other neighborhoods, not just in Hartford? Yeah, you know, our hope is that this definitely is both a scalable and reproducible model by other groups who want to run with it. In fact, we're already having some conversations uh, with some other nonprofits uh, in the north end of Hartford, other neighborhoods who are trying to learn from us in live time as we go through this process. And so, again, uh, I don't think this solves the big grocery problem in Hartford. But I do think that small neighborhood markets with this kind of a model, and particularly the fresh food access uh, in neighborhoods throughout the city, uh, can certainly in a short term uh, kind of fill some of the gaps that we know exist. And Jason, I, I know this is this is a long term problem, but with the grocery store um, coming in as a short term solution, uh, as what Ben was just saying, can you talk about Connecticut FoodShare's involvement here? You know, what's the timeline like? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're hoping to open, you know, there's a lot of permitting obviously in, involved in it. There's a lot, there's a little bit of build out that we have to do. Uh, we're very grateful that Connecticut Food Share uh, received a $250,000 federal grant uh, through uh, Congressman Larson. Uh, to 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 do this project, and uh, once we got authorization for that, we started working with Ben and and his team over there on the build out, on the designs. I know we're on radio, so you can't see the actual pictures, but I'm looking at the I'm looking at the uh, the, the beautiful schematic designs. Um, it, it's it's been a it's been a, a labor of love, I think, for a lot of us um, from the time that we've gotten the the, uh, the 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 federal grant to do it. And I know you know you had asked previously about. Uh, replicating it in other places. We always went into this with the theory that if this works, it is absolutely replicable in other spots around the, the city. I will I'll admit every time I run into to Mayor Bronin, he's asking me, hey, when can we do one of these up in the uh, up in the north end? We've had some conversations about, you know, if this works, I mean, this is a, a model that we could do. In terms of the, the dignity piece, though, I mean, what Ben was speaking to, um, is very similar to what we're to to what we're seeing across the the country in terms of food banking and in terms of uh, food pantries and how we're we're uh, uh, helping people who are affected by food insecurity. Ten years ago, it was hey, I'm hungry, and and you know some so 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 you go to a pantry and they hand you a bag of food, and you know that's not as dignified as taking a shopping cart and going up and down the aisles and being able to select your own your own product and pay for it in a way that, like Ben said, nobody has any idea when you're paying you know what what discount you're you're getting. Um, that's a shift, not just. Uh, in terms of this this grocery model, I mean that's a shift that we're we're seeing and we're trying to to uh, to promulgate at all of our uh, pantries across the state of Connecticut. And Jason, you know we're talking about Hartford this hour, which has the highest food insecurity rate in the state, as we mentioned earlier on the show. But how does this issue show up elsewhere in Connecticut? You know we know it's not a Hartford unique problem. You know, for example, can you talk about your concerns perhaps in more rural areas? Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, the the biggest misnomer that we have, and, and I, I I see this every time I go to one to a to a national convention or something, and they look at me and they say, "Oh, you're you're from uh, the food bank in Connecticut," and you know, there's always a joke about you know oh, how wealthy you all are and your yachts and everything. There is absolutely a misperception. Well, look, Connecticut is the richest state in the country, but there is this misperception out there that there is not a problem with food insecurity. There's about 400,000 people in Connecticut who are food insecure, and it's not just Hartford, Bridgeport, uh, uh, New Haven. Um, We serve at least one family in each of the 169 towns here in Connecticut. So that goes for a major city like Hartford. It goes for a suburban uh, 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 place like West Hartford. It goes for rural towns like, like Cornwall. And, um, you know, you kind of alluded to this in, in, in the question. Uh, yeah, there may not be a lot of grocery stores in some of the urban centers. There's certainly not a lot of grocery stores in some of the more rural parts of, of, of Connecticut. And, you know, Connecticut is a very rural state with a lot of urban centers. Um, so it, it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult thing for us just on a daily basis, figuring out how do we deal with the the um you know, the, the, the urban centers, the suburban areas and the rural areas. But the problem is the same. The approach and the solution may be a little bit different, but at the at, at its core, it's the it's the same. And just because we're a wealthy state does not mean that we have no issues with food insecurity here. 
Right. And we've been talking about specific neighborhoods. You know, you've just mentioned certain rural areas that can that can be a really big concern for in- food insecurity. I think another area that we don't often talk about or think about is that it's even higher among college students. Uh, swipe, oh, out, yeah, swipe Out hang, uh, Hunger is a national advocacy nonprofit, and they found that at least one in three college students is effective nationwide. And I covered the, the state general session um, earlier, and that was a huge a conversation amongst the state reps um, about it. So, can you can you talk? Can you touch on that? You know, how big of a problem is it here in Connecticut, Jason? Yeah. Oh no. Look, it's 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 a problem. We're doing more to solve it today than we were five or six years ago. Uh, when I started at Connecticut Food Share, uh, it was a conversation that had just begun. Uh, I remember being with uh, 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 folks from the Rudd Center and from and with uh, Senator uh, Murphy up at UConn doing a student roundtable. And uh, UConn did a lot of research in terms of where student hunger was at. Uh, We have pantries at many of the colleges and universities here in the state of Connecticut. Um, We've had some that have we've had for more than 10 years. We have others that we've recently onboarded. Again, uh, UConn is a a great example. Uh, Over the last year, we just opened the, the Husky Harvest pantries at each campus. Uh, stores, the four regional campuses, plus the School of Medicine and the and the School of Law in, in Hartford. And, you know, a lot of people look at a college campus and say, well, everybody's on a meal plan. Why do they need why do they need food? Again, not true. Uh, you have a lot of people that are that are commuter students. You have a lot of people that are on uh, significantly fixed incomes and being able to work with the university uh, and, and get that done uh, was 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 great. Um, so there definitely is a, a recognition. You alluded to the state legislature a couple of years ago. They they did pass a, a requirement that every public higher ed institution every October has to report its food insecurity number to the state. Uh, that was basically a, a um, you know, a, a, an, an initial uh, laying the initial groundwork for the fact that, you know, yes, the state was going to be serious about about tackling uh, college hunger. And Dr. Caspi, with what Jason just mentioned, with the partnerships, too, with UConn and uh, the food pantries for students, you know, you're also the director of food security initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health. You know, can you talk about your work there and how this issue really hits home at UConn and beyond, really? Yeah, um, we have, there was a substantial amount of work, particularly during the pandemic that was done to try to get um, to get the, our finger on the pulse of of the problem, um, much of it was done before I arrived at UConn. Um, so I want to give credit to my colleagues Kristen Cooksey Stower and Marlene Schwartz um, for leading those efforts at the start uh, and and prior to the pandemic. But um, as a result of a lot of these efforts, there has been uh, much discussion and the opening of food pantries on campus. Um, and then I think another piece of the conversation that's really been moving forward is um, how to expand SNAP eligibility for college students. This is um, a, a conversation that's happening nationally, not just um, you know in Connecticut or at UConn. And during the pandemic, um, SNAP was some of the the, the requirements were relaxed, and SNAP um, was more accessible to students. But um, again, I think this is a really important conversation um, in um, kind of addressing the problem in a, a population at risk. And Jason, as we continue this conversation, you know, what are some of the primary policy solutions you like to see, especially with a lot of relief programs either phasing out or has phased out? 
oh, we could go on forever about the policy solutions. We've got like a couple of minutes here, Jason. <laughs> uh, um, look, absolutely correct in, in that, you know, pantries are, are great. They're wonderful. SNAP is absolutely the first line of defense against hunger. For every meal that a food pantry or a food bank can provide, SNAP can provide 10 or 11. Um, that is the first line of defense. It's a dignified way of, of, helping, um, of helping individuals and helping families. Obviously, we very much we, we are always encouraging Congress to uh, increase the SNAP benefit, uh, increase SNAP eligibility as much as as much as humanly possible. I think the other piece of it is you look at things like um, the, uh, the the child tax credit. Perfect example. Um, you know, people don't think of that as directly as as combating food insecurity, but it absolutely does. People people are hungry because uh, go hungry because they're making choices in their life. Do they pay for you know childcare? Do they pay for uh, do they pay for school? Do they pay for um, uh, electricity? Do they pay for medication or do they pay for food? Um, that helps take that uh, lessen that uh, that decision. So those are things the federal government can do. Uh, the state government. We've been having great conversations with a number of of, of legislators about uh, increasing the state's nutrition assistance program, which is the amount of food that the that the state buys um, and provides to our pantries. Uh, that needs to that definitely needs to increase. Our pantries are, are really hurting, and we're hoping that in the next legislative session that we will uh, that that uh, that they'll they'll make a significant uh, increase. In And Ben, we got about a minute or so here, but also would like to ask, you know, any final thoughts, especially as you launch the grocery store, any solutions that you would like to see? You know, again, reiterating kind of it's got to be across the board, right? These are such intersectional issues and how we uh, provide uh, really income and money and uh, workforce development, which is the other thing that we do and all those kind of things is really all together, really critical. And it's going to take a lot of pieces of the puzzle to make a difference. And we need to kind of look at all these creative solutions uh, as we move forward. You've been listening to Ben Dubow with Forge City Works. Thank you so much, Ben, for being with us this morning. Great to be with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've also been listening to Jason Jagabowski at Connecticut Food Share. Thank you, Jason, for joining us today. Thank you. Great conversation. And we also have Dr. Caitlin Caspi, who's a UConn associate professor. Thank you so much for breaking down everything for us today and helping us understand the situation better. Thanks for having me. And coming up next, we hear about the Grub Pub at Hartford High School, which is a new in-school pantry. Principal Flora Padro joins us after a break. And you can join us too. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing food insecurity in Connecticut and some of the solutions. At Hartford High School, a new in-school pantry is helping students to stem the tide. According to Hartford Public Statistics, 75% of students receive free or reduced price meals at school. And joining us now to discuss is Principal Flora Padro. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Are you there, Principal Padro? She might not be there, but that's okay, because I am going to quickly bring back Dr. Caitlin Caspi, who's a UConn Associate Professor. Welcome back for a segment, Dr. Caspi. 
Hi, how are you? Good. Um, as I'm we... excellent. Thank you for asking. Oh, do we have Dr. Uh, Principal Padra, are you on? I think we're having a little bit of a, a technical issue here, but that's okay. Dr. Caspi, um, I want to talk about the importance of school pantries while we figure out um, what's going on with our lines this morning. We've been talking a lot about stigma. We've been talking a lot about needing solutions. So can you talk about has has the pandemic changed school pantries? You know, has that culture changed? Um, so uh, I think um, our guests will be able to speak a little bit more to what's happening um, in, in the local area. But we did see, um, you know, a, a, an expansion of pantries, new models um, pop up during the pandemic when people were um, trying out new ways of, get, of getting food to families um, and school pantries have emerged as really important, a really important piece of that. Um, I also want to go back to um, something that we discussed in the last segment about sort of the role that food pantries are playing for households. Um, I want to emphasize that in my own research, we found um, really that people who are relying on food pantries are relying on them for a really large amount of food. So um, while we might think of um, the, the, these uh, food pantries as paying, playing just sort of a, a maybe minor or supplemental role, uh, they really contribute to a large portion of the food that people are, um, are, are providing. So in my own research, we found if we've surveyed people who are using food pantries, we found that half of people are saying that they get half or more of their total food from the food pantry when they're visiting. So really the more resources, including school food pantries that we can um, use to, to sort of bolster um, people's pantries um, and, and allow them to cook healthy meals at home, the better. And I uh, just wanna take a quick moment to check in if Principal Aflora is on. I am on. You are on. Thank you so much for being on. Happy to hear you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we were just talking about how important it is to have school pantries and in, in high schools, middle schools and, and whatnot. So can you tell us about how the Grub Pub got started and a little bit about how that pantry works? Um, absolutely. So I think the pandemic definitely shined a light at some of the struggles that we were seeing with our students across um, the nation. Coming back from the pandemic, we definitely those struggles did not go away. And we wanted to ensure that the schools had ways of really supporting students, not just academically, but across um, all areas of uh, disparities and support. So we started brainstorming, like, what are the, the great needs? We have a mixed population. We have 800 students at Hartford High. Um, it is the largest comprehensive um, in the city of Hartford. And so we wanted to ensure that we were meeting uh, all sorts of uh, needs beyond the social, emotional, and academic. We ran across an application from Stop and Shop. They have a pantry program uh, within schools that is national. We took a chance, we applied, and we were actually awarded $20,000 to begin this food pantry. Um, fortunately, that was only the beginning. In addition to being able to have this large award, um, we were able to get different corporate sponsorships um, to aid in providing supplies for hygiene. So we have a hygiene pantry. We were able to expand a food pantry and create a clothing pantry. And we are actually in the process of um, pushing out a laundry service uh, for students. They may have struggles with accessing that as well. 
um, it was super important that we were able to support all students. Uh, we have a high international population, and as I stated, it's uh, students with varying needs. And so it was important that we were able to provide any family with a food insecurity or food need the opportunity to, to have access to nutritional meals. So I definitely want to dive into the other services that the pantry is able to provide in a little bit, but I also want to touch on that this is the second year the Grubhub has been running. You know, what has the response been? Have students been been using the services? Have they been, you know, excited that this is available to them? You know, what has that been like? Absolutely. Um, students are definitely aware that the services are there as our families. We um, give out food on a weekly basis. We've actually managed to create several in-house internships where now the Grubhub is helped be managed by student interns, everything from our data system to the actual putting together the bags of uh, groceries and so on. Um, it's it's a quiet process, right? We don't um, necessarily, um, you know, push the bags of food out to the students in a, in a public setting. Um, so students, they may be wary of, you know, being singled out or uh, showcasing that they have these disparities, um, are able to obtain what they need in a, in a kind of reserved and quiet environment. Families as well. So the process is the same. Uh, staff help to uh, process the, the, the Google form, the applications for or the request for food. And, um, you know, we push it out within 24 hours or less. And you mentioned laundry services just now too. You know, when will that be up and running, and what does that what does that look like? Can students bring in clothes or get clothes, or what is that? So we have a clothing pantry for students to get clothes. Um, and with winter season coming around, you know, we give out coats and sweaters and warm gear and so on. So that's a super important part of what we do. The laundry services actually started from. Um, a teacher putting in a donor's choose request for a washer and a dryer. Uh, we were able to then get the plumbing installed so students can now come in um, within the next month or so and bring a small load of laundry and be able to, you know, have like an emergency laundry service done. And so you told Fox 61 Connecticut that these efforts are part of a new normal that you hope to introduce. And you just touched on sort of the importance of meeting social and emotional needs. And I've done a lot of stories, too, related to pantries where it really is more than just about the food, is about meeting what the students need beyond, you know, beyond uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Can you talk about more about this new normal and how important it is, is to be able to help these students in their various needs? The old normal never worked. <laughs> we had high instances of chronic absenteeism. We had students that um, were quite honestly choosing work over school because they had to provide um, food or resources for the families. Um, and this took away from the actual learning. So it's it's hard to convince a student to bypass going to work to earn some extra cash to meet a need that the family had, um, especially at the high schools. So we really needed to re-envision what supports or wraparound services look for our students. We're fortunate that we have, you know, medical um, assistance in the building for students to, to access that, dental clinic, and so on. We wanted to just expand on those services and ensure that all students were able to, whatever the need was, get those needs met. And what we saw was a decrease in chronic absenteeism by more than 25 
by more than 25 points, percentage wow. points. What we have seen is um, a steady attendance of 80 percent, 80%, 80% daily attendance um, for the last two for the last two years. We've seen the significant increase. What we have seen is students um, capitalizing on our career pathways, capitalizing on internships. We've seen a shift in the culture in the building. And we've seen students genuinely take more ownership and accountability for their own learning. Um, we're creating a community. So it goes beyond just the pantries. It goes beyond the services. Um, it's a shared responsibility for all of us to create a culture in which we're uplifting each other. So we got about a minute here left, but I do want to ask, now, what else do you want to see done in your community to address food insecurity as you continue these partnerships and these skilled uh, these skills or sessions for these students to to build on? Absolutely. So sustainability is always in the back of my mind. So continuing to grow our sponsorships with uh, other partners, but, you know, tying this work to our Ally Health Career Pathway. Um, there is absolutely no reason that our students within our Ally Health Program couldn't be helping to expand on what our mission is for educating and providing services um, that, that combat food insecurities. So one of the things that we're envisioning and starting is having our pathway students actually create um, model lessons on healthy eating, nutrition for not just other students, but for the families and the members of the community um, and being able to lead that work themselves. Thank you so much for that. You've been listening to Flora Padro, who's the principal of Hartford High School. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. And also quick thanks to Dr. Caitlin Caspi, who's the UConn Associate Professor, for staying on the line with us and jumping into the conversation earlier. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 